Well, good morning. It is good to see you all out this morning on this beautiful Sunday morning. If you take your bulletins out for just a moment, I want to highlight something in here and just spend a couple minutes praising the Lord as we prepare our hearts for 1 Thessalonians. If you'll turn to take the bulletin from the front cover, just turn it over. And on the back side, you'll notice that there is a a list here. In fact, uh, Sarah, I moved ahead. If you want to move back to that, uh, do we have that graphic? Uh, sorry, I jumped ahead of that. But uh, you have this graphic that is on the back of your bulletin, and it's showing the matching and boiler debt reduction. And you'll see that we have raised $65,000 uh, to that effort. That is four weeks worth of fundraising. For that. And so that means uh, if you go downstairs and you walk through the hallway between the fellowship hall and into the classrooms back over here, you'll notice that the ceiling's been pulled out of certain portions as they're running uh, new lines back and forth as they're installing the new boiler. If you go into uh, the furnace room that's just off of the junior high room, you'll notice that there's a new boiler. It's about like that big. <laughs> uh, it's huge back in there. It fills a lot more than I thought it would. And so they're doing all of that work. What this number shows you on the back is that the boiler is completely and entirely paid for. And that's absolutely. And it also reveals that $15,000 above the boiler is going to the debt reduction as we continue to inch our way towards the Overall goal of raising, we have $100,000 in matching funds, and we're seeking to match that then with uh, another $100,000. And you'll see we're almost three-quarters of the way there as we're working to that end goal. I sat back and marveled over the first couple weeks as we saw money come in, and really it was within two weeks of us uh, approving the boiler that the first $50,000 came in, and that is truly of the Lord. And we want to take a few moments this morning and just praise him for his abounding provision for us. Uh, this is truly, after the years of debt reduction that we have done, the projects that the Lord has allowed us to complete, this is truly the hand of God at work in our midst, and we want to praise him for that. And so let's do that now as we glorify him in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we look at these numbers, and to us, they are mind-boggling. These are numbers that we simply recognize are your abounding provision for us, that you've laid it upon the hearts of those who have given, and the rest of us collectively as well, that we too would have the opportunity to participate, to be the evidence of stewardship of what you have provided for us. Lord, I praise you that even as we pray this, we know that work has gone on throughout the week, and a couple weeks ahead, and we're looking forward to a new boiler system, the efficiency of that. We're praising you, though, that it is entirely paid for. Lord, again, we celebrate your goodness to us. Reflecting back over the summer, as we talked about as elders and as deacons, the financial things that we had coming up this fall, they were daunting to our finite imaginations. But we praise you that in such a short period of time, you have used your people to participate in your great work. Lord, we continue towards that goal of 
meeting the debt reduction payment that we can for this year, and we are excited for that. We know that there's additional to go in the year to come, but we are excited to see how far you have brought us in just a short period of time and getting the debt reduction completed, as well as the significant projects such as the boiler done. So, Lord, we do want to honor you, glorify you, as we celebrate your goodness to us, your mercy and grace to us, as we see it demonstrated on the bottom line of these financial records. Lord, we thank you for uh, those that you have used for this purpose. We pray that all of us would be faithful stewards, recognizing the role that we play and the resources that you have provided for us. And we give you the glory and the honor for it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, as we continue in our study of this book, and we're coming close to the end of chapter 2. We're going to save that, Lord willing, for next week before we actually conclude this chapter. But we start here in a very important text. I'm going to tell you, I wrestled throughout the week where we are at because there is one verse that we could spend our entire morning on, and I'm tempted still in this moment to do so. So if suddenly your outline in your bulletin gets chopped in half, you know that really I wrestled with two sermons all week long. I think we can get it done in one, and that's what we're going to do, but there may be the opportunity for us to stop here and focus in on verse 13. As we do, do that, as we prepare our hearts there, John, Wolver, John Walvard wrote this. He said, there are two aspects to every sermon. One is the delivery, and the other is the hearing. One is the delivery, and the other is the hearing. Having our hearts prepared to hear the word of God is a serious matter. And I think in, within evangelicalism and even within churches like ours, it is disproportionately focused on the preaching and less on the hearing. In fact, I know that uh, as a pastor, you don't just come to the pulpit and preach. There are years of development, years of training, and a lot of those years are spent with considerable amount of energy and effort and finances to polish and to shine up a preacher's delivery. We're taught as pastors and homiletics how to deliver a message. And through years in ministry, uh, there are plenty of opportunities for that to be buffed out. There are plenty of people who will come and say, hey, pastor, what about this? And then there will be plenty of situations as well where the pastor steps off, and speaking from personal experience, the pastor steps off and says, Lord, take that message and use it for your glory because I feel like I failed. But is there the same energy and effort placed into the hearing of God's word? It is something that is of critical importance because the preacher can do all kinds of things in preaching and be spirit-led in that preaching and the hearer be distracted by fantasy football. The hearer could be distracted by, oh, here's a moment, I'm going to pull out my phone and I'm going to catch up on my emails. You'll be surprised how many emails I receive from you all in the middle of a message. I believe that there is a time for us to be diligent hearers of the Word of God. 
and that is before us today. My question is, what do you expect to get out of a message? What do you expect to hear in the Word of God? Today, the distractions of information overload are so easy to come to the place of being disconnected and to kind of go into a vegetative state. But your reason for listening to a message is probably going to be different than somebody next to you. In fact, as a preacher who listens to other preachers, I'm looking for illustrations. I'm looking for how they polished or how they explained something. I'm looking for how the audience or congregation interacted with the pastor. You may be thinking, oh, you know, pastor's tie is crooked. Or you may be thinking, wow, I need to understand this point and dig into it more deeply. And you could do that in the same message. It is important, and it is indeed a noble purpose, to listen well, to compare Scripture with Scripture, and then to apply the message that is preached. You may have negative feelings. You may feel offended by the message or the messenger or somebody else in the fellowship. Or you may be looking for reasons or areas to criticize. But it is important for us in understanding the faithfulness of the church that we be those who receive the word of God as evidence in our faith lived out. And so our central idea this morning is have you received the word of God or how you receive the word of God will be evident when your faith is tested. So there is a real important rubber meets the road point to what Paul is going to tell us and instruct us in the word of God this morning. The way the Thessalonians behaved after they had heard the message of Paul reveals did they listen or did they not listen? And it does the same for you and I. When you encounter the various struggles that you will face this week, how you listened to the message will impact how you respond in faith to those things. So since we've already prayed and we spent time in that moment with our Lord, let's continue now in his word as we turn to verse 13 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And scripture says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you brothers. In order for the Thessalonians to respond as Paul is about to recognize they responded to the persecution that is around them, they first had to have the right attitude towards Paul's preaching, towards the message that Paul brought. And in order to do that, they have to have the proper appreciation. Now, these are... Uh, alliterated the three P's, three A's to follow them, but that was only by ease <laughs> rather than purpose. And so don't get stuck in that, but let us recognize the, the first is proper appreciation. Paul returns to one of the book's great themes of all of 1 Thessalonians by expressing gratitude. That was all of chapter 1, and he left it in chapter 2 to defend the preacher and defend the message, and then he's come back now to this theme of thanksgiving. And so Paul, it's important for us to recognize that Paul is not preaching at the Thessalonians. He is praising God for their response to his preaching. His thankfulness is due to the way that they had received the word of God. 
He says they received the word of God, which you had heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So Paul thanks the Lord for his response from the people, or from this response from the people. Paul has spent most of the chapter pointing to and reminding the believers in Thessalonica of the message and the messenger as of both being from God, both speaking the words of God, one being the audible words coming from the preacher and one being the very words given to the preacher. So John Walvert again reminds us that there are two aspects to every sermon. Every sermon preached, every sermon that you hear especially those, uh, because there's a lot who say that it's sermons, and really it's just pontificating upon whatever topic that the person standing behind the pulpit, I won't even call him pastor, wants to pontificate on. Those are not sermons. Those are rah-rah speeches, whatever they want to call those. Those are not sermons. But a sermon is that which is bathed in the Word of God. It is wrought out of the Word of God. It comes from the hours of working through, massaging the text, developing the understanding of the great themes that are in the book and understanding the themes that are in the text that is to be presented to the people of God because it is the Word of God. That's a sermon. And that's what Walvert is speaking of when he says that there are two aspects to every sermon. One is the delivery and so there's a considerable amount of time in a pastor's study where, and in Paul's study certainly, where he's receiving the Word of God, he's pouring it out, he's studying it, he's doing all the work that has to be done and explaining that text, and then he begins to develop how he's going to deliver that text. Both are essential, both are important, and that is one element of the sermon. The other is the hearing. So how do you listen to the message preached? It would appear that in our age, there's a great drought of faithful preaching and a greater drought of faithful listening. Beloved, do you know that preaching the Word of God and listening to the Word of God preached requires the work of the Holy Spirit? Because you and I are naturally inclined to shutting it off. In fact, I heard a preacher one time say that the worst possible way to explain anything is to preach. Isn't that fascinating? And yet that is the way that God has designed his word to be proclaimed, is through preaching. I'm not sure of the veracity of that statement, but I do understand that it's pretty easy when you're sitting in the chairs and it's comfortable and, and uh, the temperature is the right temperature and uh, you are there with your family that perhaps it is time just to kind of zone check out for just a moment. The preaching of the Word of God and the listening of the Word of God preached requires the work of the Holy Spirit, and it is hard work. How many of you, I've talked about this in the pastor's family, but how many of you struggle on a Sunday morning to get up, get going, and get off to church? Because Satan knows that it's an easier thing for you to find any other reason to be out of church than to be in the church. And even when you have developed it over habits, it's pretty easy to sit and say, well, the family is doing this or the family is doing that, and you miss the great truth of what is required to be a submissive heart and that the object of our focus is not on the messenger but on the message because that's the other element that we struggle with. 
We want to go to be entertained. We want to go find some sort of value. Well, you're not going to find much entertainment in a church that is preaching and teaching the truth of the Word of God. But you will find what the submissive heart needs. And that is a heavy dose of the Word of God. Focused on the message of the Word of God. Not on the messenger. Paul praises significant emphasis on preaching, and we have spent considerable time there, and that is appropriate, and it is, we are not shelving that idea. Paul recognizes the importance of preaching, and all faithful preachers understand the same. I have volumes of books, I have innumerable articles, and I've read the majority of them of how to be a better preacher. But Paul also does not shy away from emphasizing the need for the listener to be listening. And the believers in Thessalonica recognized the proper appreciation when they understood that Paul's message was not from men, but from God. And therefore, they personalized the appropriation of it. There's two words that stand out in Paul's praise of thanksgiving in verse 13. He's praising God uh, for the way that they had first word received the word of God. And second, that they had accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God. So they had received and accepted. The first word means to receive it as if they were receiving a friend. They've welcomed it in. There's an element of hospitality. There's a, an element of openness as they received the, a friend that is coming in. And the second word means to receive it warmly, to yearn for it, to long for it. One has the idea of hearing with the ear, and the other implies a hearing with the heart. And Paul commends the Thessalonians by means of praising God because it was God's work in them, and that becomes an important truth. It's God's work in us as listeners. It's a work of the Holy Spirit of God that we would be active, faithful listeners, willing to apply. And he says, you received, you heard it, and then you heard it. You accepted it. These believers had not only heard the truth of the word of God, but had also allowed it to assimilate into their hearts the word of life became, became a way of life for them. It wasn't just that it was on the pages in their Bibles of black and white. It wasn't just that they had heard it from a preacher, but it became the way of life for them. One old preacher was heard to say this, they went through the book and the book went through them. And I would say amen to that. They had digested the word of God and it came out of the way that they lived. Jesus communicating with his followers, he often focused attention on the attitude of the word of God in three different gospels. He says this, first he says in Matthew 13, 9, he who has ears, let him hear. In Mark chapter 4, verse 24, he says, consider carefully what you hear. In Luke 8, 18, consider carefully how you listen. Christ focuses on the attitude of the word of his Father. How do you respond to this? And Paul says that they had personalized appropriately the way that they had heard the word of God and the way that they had accepted the word of God. 
Beloved, it is not enough to sit in the pews or sit in the chairs or sit online and hear the word of God. That's not enough. In fact, you are inundated for all of the other hours of the week with all kinds of other information, secular, worldly information. And the moment that you spend in the word of God should not just simply be heard, but should be listened to and accepted. And you're not going to like it many of the times because it's going to take the heart that has been tainted by the things of the world around and begin to remold it, shape it into conformity with the image of Christ. Not only had they an appreciation and a proper personalized appropriation, they also had a practiced application. Continue on in verse 13. He says this, but at the very end, he says, you had not accepted it uh, as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. What a critical truth to biblical preaching. When it is not biblical preaching, in other words, a person has stood behind a pulpit and they've proclaimed things that are, some of them are in the word of God, some of them are not, many of them are distorted from the word of God. There is no change in the life of those who sit in their hearing. There is no difference because the Spirit of God is not at work in those things. You can manufacture a look like the Spirit of God is, and many churches have tried to do that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, there is no real effect, no real change. But Paul says at the end of verse 13, he says, you've accepted what we taught to you, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Honestly, one of the great frustrations of being a pastor is that it would be wonderful to tell people how they should act and behave and live. But that's not where the power of the word of God is. The power of the word of God is through his word, and it's his word that does the change in us. God is at work in his word. That's what changes in us. These dear friends in Thessalonica, whose lives had been radically changed, passionately believed in the living word of the living God, and it radically transformed their lives from pagan worshipers to God worshipers. And it was continuing to do that. The Bible is not like any other book, and that is what was read for us, what Andrew read for us earlier this morning. It is sharp. It is to do what medical miracles can't do today. It is designed to divide the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It is important that we recognize that it stands alone. The Word of God stands alone above all other volumes and weighty tomes found in every library throughout the world, the Bible stands different than them all. It is significantly different. It is different in origin, it is different in character, and it is different in content. And therefore, it must not be that we gather for some kind of book club by which you hear the latest and greatest best-selling author's ideas on the Word of God, but rather that we gather around the living Word of God from the living God and listen and accept 
the word of God, even when we don't like it. That is the practiced application of this church. At the end of verse 13, we find a word that they had received as coming from God that was now at work in them. They were not only hearers, but they were doers. James 1.25 reminds us that we are not to be hearers only, but doers of the word of God. Let us be doers of the word of God. You can memorize, you can learn all of the passages, you can apply a certain truths without understanding the truth of the word of God. We must be hearers who are applicators, hearers who are doers. Therein lies the age-old secret. It is all about living it out in the rough and tumble of everyday life. It is not segmented for Sunday morning and then we get to do whatever we want to do after that. It is not segmented for a few moments of every week, maybe a podcast or another preacher that you're hearing. It's not segmented for those things. It is designed to be lived out in the rough and tumble of everyday life. In the comfort of our homes, in the evenings, yes. On the college campuses, absolutely. At the supermarket checkout with the week's groceries in the cart, yes. In the world of business, down on the factory floor, wherever we are, whoever we are, it is all about living out the Word of God. Every moment of every day, which means we've listened and we've heard and we've applied the Word of God when it was preached on Sunday morning. God's Word had changed these people, and if we let it, it will change us too. Warren Wearsby says this, when the whole person is controlled by the Word, we evolve into men and women of the Word. That's what we should be. That's what we should be known as. I was listening to a recent podcast by some in a little bit different theological persuasion from us, but still those I would consider would hold a truth of the gospel. And they were attacking a term that I hold dearly. They said, how could you possibly be a biblicist? How can you possibly not be a biblicist? We ought to be biblicists, those who live by the Word of God, on a day-to-day basis that's lived out through us, that is the life-changing, transforming power that is in the Word of God. And that's the only place that it's found. We can manufacture it for a time. We can fake it for a time, but it's only found in the Word of God. And this is the transition. I'm going to go ahead. We're going to get the second message now. I could spend a long time on the first one. But we're going to transition to the second one. And notice how it's lived out. This is why I wanted to combine the two. Notice how it's lived out. Beloved, you and I are going to face challenges. We're going to face opposition in the world around us when we live as you are called as Christians. They're going to attack you on issues of gender. They're going to attack you on issues of, are you a biblicist? They're going to attack you on issues that pertain to Christianity and issues that do not pertain to Christianity. You are going to face opposition. And indeed, that's what happened to the Thessalonians when they faced opposition and persecution came knocking. Notice, the scripture continues, it says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, 
For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and displeased God and opposed all mankind. The persecution came to this church. Persecution came knocking when they started living different. Remember, they're living in the shadows of Mount Olympus. They went from being pagan worshipers to God worshipers. They went from worshiping and behaving in the sensualities of the world around them to those who live chaste and holy lives. The persecution then came knocking. How dare you change who you are? And worse, how dare you tell others to change who they are? Doesn't that sound like a modern assault against the church? How dare you change? But whoa, you want to change somebody else? How dare you? You can't change them. You have no right. I don't care if you're their parent or not. You have no rights to change their thoughts. You have no rights to tell them that they're wrong. The reason for Paul's thanksgiving is tied directly to the experiences the believers in the church at Thessalonica were at that moment facing. And it is true for us today as well. The challenges that you face in the days to come and the way that you address them will distinctly apply to the way that you've listened to the Word of God. How you live those out and the faithfulness of living those out. Persecution had come of the same type that had been experienced by many others. Their sufferings were the same as the church in Jerusalem. In fact, Paul says that in verse 14. He says, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Judea. In other words, you were doing the same thing that was happening in Jerusalem when the persecution there drove all of the church out of Jerusalem. The same kinds of sufferings that they had experienced. And yet, while there was the great dispersion, there still was a church in Jerusalem. And that is an important truth for us. It is a side benefit of our discussion this morning as we work through the Word of God together. But it is important to recognize that when persecution came, it did not destroy the church at Thessalonica. Nor did it destroy the church in Jerusalem. It squished them, it squeezed them, and it drove some of them out. And as it did, the church sprouted wherever they went. But the church remained in Jerusalem, albeit underground, and the church remained in Thessalonica, albeit underground. But the church was growing, just like the church today in China has been squished and squeezed. But the church hasn't died. In fact, it's larger than it has ever been in the history of modern man, modern understanding of history, at least. In Judea, it was at the hands of the Jews. In Thessalonica, it was at the hands of the Gentiles who were led by the Jewish voices. Remember, it was the mob of Jews who had stirred up the masses of the pagan people against Paul and Silas. What should the church do in times of persecution? The church in Thessalonica had responded appropriately, and they turned to the Word of God. Beloved, I've been asked many times as a pastor, as we look at the news, as we encounter on a day-to-day basis those with worldviews that are radically different than our worldview. Those who have been willing to push the issue and push people out. You're a Christian, I don't want you here because you disagree with my lifestyle or my choices, and so I'm going to make your life 
miserable. What do we do? Do we resign ourselves and sit back and wait for the Lord to come? That would be tempting as we study 1 Thessalonians because that would be what we are pointing to is Christ's return. We're looking forward to Christ's return. But notice what Paul says. He doesn't say, praise God that you just sat back and let all the world run around you without you. He says, praise God that you heard the word of God, that you accepted the word of God, and now it has changed the way that you're responding to the persecution to those opposed to the word of God. It is tragic but true that the righteous suffered because of the sins of the wicked. And it is tragic and true that the righteous still suffer because of the sins of the wicked. Jesus spoke of this violence in the parable in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19. Write that text down. It's an important parable in understanding the attitudes that Jesus faced and the attitudes that you and I will face Jesus speaks in Luke 20, verses 19 through 20, of sending these servants who were beaten, who were abused. These are the prophets. And then the master comes. And when the master came, or the son of the master, rather, came, they killed him, thinking that they had gotten rid of the master's influence. That's what happened to Christ. Jesus preaches that parable And he preaches it, and it upsets the Pharisees because they believe that he's speaking about them. Well, how perceptive they were. Jesus was speaking about them, and they still fulfilled what he preached about. They still did it. Thinking ahead, we understand, because we're going to look into it in verse 16, thinking ahead, there is an amassing of the wrath of God that is coming upon them by doing these actions. But concerning the heart of the believer, one of the greatest values of the local church is that in the face of persecution, the church at Thessalonica was standing together in difficult times to encourage one another because they were united on the word of God and united by the spirit of God. This is one of the reasons that Paul sends Timothy to the church in Thessalonica. To encourage them. In fact, look ahead into the next chapter. Notice what Paul does immediately after this text that we're studying right now. Notice as we skip ahead, verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and to exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul, in a short three weeks with the Thessalonians, had reminded them that the belief in Christ was going to cause persecution. And now he's desirous of sending Timothy and does indeed send Timothy back to them that they would be encouraged, standing firm, remaining there. Believer... Another great side truth for us here is that a lonely saint is, a, is very vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. We need each other in the body of Christ in the battles of life. We need the fellowship one to another. We need the encouragement of hearing that you're fighting the fight well 
And we need it not to come just in the raw, raw kind of way, but through the power of the word of God spoken to us. You're doing the right thing because God says it's the right thing. Which means that the word of God is not some lofty thing that's only for pastors to understand and then to water down. No. I trust that you've never gotten that feeling from this pulpit that the word of God has ever been watered down. But rather that it has been explained and expounded upon and exhorted to you because you can handle it. Because you can handle it. You say, but pastor, it's, it's tough. It's hard. These are a different world in some cases. How was the heart made ready to listen to the word of God? The heart of the Thessalonians was made ready to listen to the word of God. And when persecution came, that would cause some of their own deaths. That would cause them to be driven out from their homes. They did not waver. Because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Notice the pressures that came. There was... There was fierce hostilities, fierce hostilities that had come. We, that's what we've just been speaking of. Fierce hostilities that were driving and seeking to separate. Notice the text here in verse, 13, uh, verse 15. It says that they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. How did they oppose all mankind? The next truth here is that they obstructed the gospel. They obstructed the gospel. They opposed all mankind, Paul says into verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. There is opposition out there today that is seeking to squash and to quell the gospel message going out to anybody else. Why? Because they don't want them believing. Satan is not divided against himself. His efforts are, are that which would cause chaos and disorder, but they are not divided against itself. The hostilities were so fierce that the crowd sought to do everything they could to prevent the gospel from being shared to the Gentiles. That's why the Jews, wherever Paul went, would rise up first. It wasn't because Paul was making significant inroads into the Jewish population. We know he was not. Despite his efforts to do so, he was not making a significant difference in the Jewish places in the synagogues around the world. Paul was making significant inroads in the Gentile populations. So why did the Jews rise up? What did they care? They rose up because Paul was proclaiming the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where opposition will come. They didn't want the gospel going to the Gentiles. Listen carefully. The opposition of the world and of the unbelieving heart is especially brought out against the person faithfully teaching and proclaiming Christ. The world, Jew and Gentile, does not necessarily oppose morality. You notice that? They don't necessarily oppose morality. In fact, they're shouting it now. We need more law. We just don't want to live by law. It's a weird dichotomy that we see happening in our world. We, we want morality. We expect morality as demonstrated to us, but we're not opposed to it as such. Nor does the world, Jew and Gentile, 
oppose religion as such. Go to any other portion of the world and any other religious system of the world, and they're not opposed to religion at all. But it does oppose a bona fide, transforming kind of Christianity. The world does not want Christ and Him crucified. The world didn't want Christ and Him crucified when they crucified Christ. And they don't want Him today. It does not want a gospel that ignores human merit, exposes human pride, and calls sinners to trust in Christ alone for salvation and for forgiveness. The world does not want that. When we take a stand for Christ and his word, we can expect opposition from unbelievers and the obstruction of the gospel. If you're not being opposed for standing for the things of Christ, perhaps you're not standing for the things of Christ. The world does not want Christ and him crucified. You talk about Jesus all you want in the sense of, yeah, he was a good person. But when you talk about him as the Savior, don't talk to me about that. But notice Paul's encouragement. He's been encouraging these believers. He's been driving them along. But notice how he continues. He says this, that judgment has come. Verse 16 says, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as also to fill up the measure of their sin, but wrath has come upon them at last. There's a lot of debate, and this is part of the reason why I thought about saving this portion of the message until later, because there's a lot of debate about this judgment. What is the wrath that has come upon them? The wrath mentioned here is a wrath that is already in the past. He refers to it in the past tense. It's already taken place. In chapter 1, verse 10, Paul spoke of wrath there in chapter 1, but that was a wrath to come. That was a future wrath. So there's a current wrath and a future wrath. There is a past wrath that is currently in effect and one that is yet to come. The wrath in chapter 2 seems to use the words has come as indicative of the fact that so far as God is concerned, the whole judgment scenario has already happened. Romans chapter 8 verse 30 uses the term in a similar sense there to follow that truth. For the wrath of God has come. John's gospel, and this is where I want us to turn for just a moment. We're going to end here. John's gospel speaks of it in a similar way. John chapter 3. John chapter 3 verses 18 and skipping ahead to verse 36. John 3 beginning in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then skip down to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The, the grand picture of the judgment scenario, those who are heaping up wrath have already been condemned. And the evidence of that is outflowing. And so it becomes very critical for the believers in Thessalonica to understand that God is not turning a blind eye to the events that are happening around them. Just because persecution is allowed to persist does not mean that God has ignored it. God is righteous and holy and just in every way and will bring that to the fruition of 
judgment and wrath. And for the believers in Thessalonica to know that the Word of God is effective, that they should be hearers and listeners, is emboldened, emboldened by the truth that God does not ignore the injustices that have been committed against them. There's many other discussions we could have on the wrath of God, but this one seems to fit into the context the best. As Paul begins to look towards the future as he closes out the chapter. And there we will return next week. I'm going to ask again, how do you listen to sermons? Why do you listen to sermons? If you were to critique your heart, it's pretty easy to critique the guy behind the pulpit. Trust me, there's no stronger critic than the one standing behind the pulpit of his own preaching. But if you were to critique your own heart, when you hear the Word of God preached, would you find your heart in humble submission to the Spirit's direction? Would you find your heart willing to hear and to accept? Would you find your heart to be that which is led by the Spirit's direction and will? Maybe you've checked email, social media, or your fantasy football team. Are you listening to apply? The Thessalonians soon needed to fall back on the messages of Paul, and they needed it to not just be here, but they needed it to be here. They needed it to be lived out. Beloved, you and I live in a wicked age in which the Word of God powerfully speaks to And it does it through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that how you listen to the messages so that you can apply them on the rigors of the bumpy road that you're going to walk the rest of the week? Or do you say, I fulfilled my block of time. I've heard the word of God and I'm going to go my way. No wonder if that is our heart, no wonder why we have young people leaving the church. No wonder why, if that is the condition of the heart, we have your own heart saying, what is the value of being a part of the fellowship of God? I think we know better than that. I'm not putting us into that category. But let us not lose sight of the fact that our application of how we listen to the Word of God has a more direct an immediate impact on our family and on our own lives than how polished the sermon is, how well-spoken the preacher is, or how relevant the text was to us. The believers at Byron Center Bible Church will soon fall back on the messages preached in the Word of God. You will soon be tested on them. Will you have heard 
and accepted? Will you have listened and received the word of God to live in the age in which we live? Let me close this time in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, it is easy for us to lie in quiet, solemn, and listen, but not hear. I pray that this morning as we continue in our worship service and the singing of these songs of faith, that we would be those who recognize the power of your word, that we would critique our own hearts to the submission of your word. May we be people who recognize that whether we think the message of the word of God today is relevant or not, that we would be those who listen and apply, recognizing that it may be very relevant in the next few moments as we depart from here, as we engage with the ungodly world around us, as we begin to put into practice the word of God that was put into us. Lord, we certainly pray that as long as you should tarry the faithful proclamation and preaching of the word of God would fill the halls of this church fellowship. We pray that the preaching would be faithful and dynamic for your people to hear, to respond, to receive. And we also pray that the hearts of every single believer who joins this fellowship for any length of time would be encouraged, strengthened, and renewed. Not in the sense of, I feel better today about myself, but in the sense of, I can go through tomorrow because I know whom I have believed. Lord, I pray that these would not just be anthems that we would sing, but that the choruses of our hearts united together would exalt your worthiness exalt the vibrancy of the living Word of God. May we be a people who recognize that though the world may see your Word as archaic, we see it as living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as it did when the original quill touched parchment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. May we be a people who are dynamically opposed to the secularism that we view around us. And may we be a people who live that opposition out in humble submission to the Spirit of God, willing to love those who don't know Christ yet as Savior, willing to do so in the full authority and the full submission to the power of the Word of God. Lord, may this be our testimony. May it be similar to the testimony of the Thessalonian believers, that we would be those when persecution, when opposition arrive, that we do not flee in terror, that we rise up in the truth of the word of God, that your name would be glorified in our lives. And Lord, we pray that as we continue in our worship this morning, having worshiped through even the announcements, through the first set of songs, through the message, and now through the set of set, second set of songs, that we would do so with renewed energy, renewed hearts, renewed to encounter the world that we encounter as we depart from here. That your name would be glorified in it. 
that Christ would be lived out through us, and that you would be exalted with the glories that are due to only you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.